This is Katie Lewis, and you're listening to Farming on Mars. Hey, I'm Sierra Ware, and this is Farming on Mars, a podcast that tells the stories of agriculture on the South Plains of Texas. I grew up on a cotton farm in the world's largest contiguous cotton-producing region, and now that I'm a college agronomy student myself, my love for farming and having great conversations with those who have come before me has only grown. This is about the land here on the South Plains. With an average annual rainfall of only 18 inches and the reddish color of the majority of soils around here, it can be just about as harsh sometimes as what I would imagine Mars being like. With each podcast, I want to highlight and hear the unique stories of this region's farmers, agronomists, business people, and anyone else who's involved in agriculture here on the South Plains. This week for episode 6, I had a great conversation with Dr. Katie Lewis about her love for soil and the delicate balance between ensuring profitability and taking care of the soil, as well as how her connection to farming influences her research. She had some awesome knowledge to share on cotton-related issues here on the South Plains, so let's go ahead and jump into this week's episode. So my name is Katie Lewis. I'm an assistant professor here at Texas A&M AgriLife Research and Texas Tech University in the Plant and Soil Science Department. I grew up in South Texas. Uh, my father is a cotton farmer, grain sorghum farmer in San Patricio County. So I've been around agriculture all my life. I have an undergraduate in chemistry and after finishing up my bachelor's degree, I went on to graduate school at Texas A&M University in College Station, which is where I also met my husband. Um, and he is from Brownfield, Texas, just south of Lubbock. And his family is also in agriculture. They farm in Brownfield, Terry County. And in 2014, after we finished graduate school, we moved to Lubbock. And he has started taking over the family farm, and I am in research and teaching. How did your path lead you to soil science? So growing up, I never would have imagined that I would be where I am now. And I believe that everybody has a path laid out for them. It's just those decisions along the way that get you to where you're, you're going. Um, so while I was in graduate school, well, let me backtrack a little. So as a chemistry major, I decided that I, I wanted something a bit more applied and grew up in agriculture and so ended up having a uh, plant and soil science minor and took my first soil fertility course and fell in love with the science. I realized at that point that that was the direction and the future I wanted to go. And so deciding what to do for graduate school was really an easy decision because I knew I loved chemistry and I really was fascinated by the dynamics of the soil from the chemical, the physical, and the biological properties that are all interacting. Um, and so choosing that path for graduate school was really a simple one once I took that first soil science course. And then, <clears throat> still even starting my master's degree, I never thought that I would end up 
in research and academia. I really saw my future being more in industry. And as a graduate student, we were given the opportunity to teach um, different labs that A&M offered in the Soil and Crop Sciences Department. And I taught my first course and realized that I really enjoyed the interaction with the students and being able to um, further their education and their knowledge base as well. Ending up in Lubbock, Texas is another story. I mentioned that I met my husband in graduate school and he was in my, uh, my first lab that I taught and asked me all semester long, and you may not even know the story, but um, he asked me all semester long if I would go on dates with him. And I kept telling him no, because that was definitely not something, I didn't want anyone to think he was getting an A because he was dating his teacher. And so we waited until after grades had been submitted and we went on our first dates. And I think it was on the third date that he told me that if I didn't see myself living in West Texas, this area specifically, that we probably shouldn't go on a fourth date. Um, So I knew um, at that point in time that I most likely was going to end up in this part of Texas, which for the research that we do, this this is the best place to be. How does your connection to farming influence your research? It is the foundation of my research. There has to be a sense of practicality to what we're doing. If there is not a real-world application to the research, I don't see a purpose behind it. Uh, If we're not going to be researching something that can, at one point in time, make a difference to a farmer, even if it's an individual farmer, then I don't see a reason for us doing that. And not to say that there aren't things that we do that aren't going to have a direct impact right here and now, but they still could have a potential impact 10 years down the road. Why is soil such a valuable resource? Soil is the foundation of everything. It is, we wouldn't have food to eat. We wouldn't um, have the clothes on our backs if it wasn't for the soil that we grow our crops in. People that, um, I guess, tend to ignore the soil and what's going on below ground don't realize just how important and how much is going on below ground. Um, The microbes are what are cycling nutrients and they're breaking down the organic material that we're leaving on the soil surface to make those nutrients available for the subsequent crop. I had a microbiology professor in graduate school that used to say that if it wasn't for the microbes and the uh, processes that were going on below ground that we'd be walking around and crap up to our knees all the time because it and it's very true I mean those microbes are breaking down all of the organic material that we leave on the soil surface and um, the soil from that standpoint not only is it providing the nutrients and supporting the plants but it's also part of a larger system Um, it sequesters carbon it it balances carbon fluxes within the biosphere and so you have soil that's sequestering CO2 and maintaining those levels in our atmosphere. 
where's the balance between taking care of the soil and farmers being able to turn a profit? And do you think they're necessarily at odds with each other? Difficult questions, Sierra. <laughs> um, but very good questions. We have to, if we think long term, we have to think about the health and the quality of our soils. But being a farmer's daughter and a farmer's wife, I also understand that we have to think about right now, right here. And that goes back to what I was saying about optimizing the use of cover crops. Because there is going to be a lag in yields in most situations. If you're implementing a cover crop, you're going to see a reduction in those first few years. And in our environment, it may be longer than just two or three years. It may be 10 or 20 years. And so we have to to optimize them for our environment so that we can not only take care of our soil and make sure that it's here for generations to come to continue to farm, but we also have to think about the farmers. And if farmers aren't making a profit, they're not going to continue to farm. And so balancing those two things is extremely difficult, um, but I think with continued research we can find the answer as to how to ensure that farmers are not only being profitable, but they're going to leave the land in better shape than what it started. What research are you working on now? I divide our research up into two different categories. One is more cropping systems where we're looking at the effects of cover crops and reduced tillage on um, soil health and crop production. And then the other one is more nutrient related. So um, improving nutrient use efficiency of fertilizer applications in cotton production systems. Both of those are very exciting, but exciting for different reasons. The cover crops, no tillage, obviously everyone knows it's a very hot topic right now, and for good reason. I mean, we live in a <laughs> in the largest sand pit in Texas. You know, I mean, there's it's it's a very difficult, very um, environment difficult environment to grow crops in because we are so sandy and dry and so the cover crops can play a big role in reducing wind erosion Um, they can improve the overall health of the soil by adding organic material to the soil and enhancing the physical properties Um, and so that's really exciting to try to optimize those production practices because of our difficult environment that we try to grow cotton in it doesn't work the same way putting a cover crop in that it would in say Georgia we don't have the rainfall and moisture is definitely a concern and so trying to optimize a cover crop and no tillage for such a dry environment is really exciting and then from the nutrient standpoint Cotton is a crop that hasn't really had as much attention, say, as corn from a nutrient standpoint. And if research has been done, it's been primarily on nitrogen. And so I knew starting a research program here that, of course, we can't just ignore nitrogen because it is the greatest limiting nutrient, but 
there needs to be some attention paid towards potassium or phosphorus and even some of the micronutrients. And so a large part of the work that we've done from a nutrient standpoint in cotton has been focused on potassium. And we have soils here that according to our soil tests are very high in potassium, but the work, the research that we've done, we've seen a response to added potassium fertilizer. And I guess the ambiguity in that is what's really exciting to me, trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Is it because our soil tests possibly aren't really measuring what's truly plant available or have the nutrient demands of a cotton crop, a cotton plant, have they changed over time so much so that we don't truly know what that cotton plant needs from a potassium standpoint, or is it the combination of the two? And so both of those things are very exciting to me. Do you think that soil is sometimes neglected whenever we're talking about the various aspects of farming? With the improved technology that's become available to farmers in um, production, whether it be cotton, whatever, systems, I think that the soil is often neglected for the value that it adds. So maybe we don't think about the benefits that we could get just from the microbes cycling nutrients below ground. And so we're going to constantly put more inorganic fertilizer out, which in no way am I saying that inorganic fertilizers are bad, but if we were to get our soil to a place that we had greater levels of organic matter, then we may get more just nutrient cycling. Those nutrients still have to come from somewhere. So if we never again applied any inorganic fertilizer, over time we may mine our soil of what's there. And so I think it's that combination of the herbicides the inorganic fertilizers with what's naturally happening in the soil that we need to be taking advantage of. And to answer your question more directly, yes, I feel like it is the value of the soil is often ignored, but if we try to have that mindset of we're going to utilize what's naturally there, but also some of these other technologies, we can have a more productive system. Why are micronutrients so important? (laughs) Micronutrients are just as important as macronutrients. Uh, The only reason that that micro is in front of nutrient is because they're just needed in smaller amounts. It does not mean that they're any less important. And one of the challenges is because they're present in the soil in much lower concentrations too. And so it makes it more difficult for that plant to um, take up the micronutrients just because they're found in smaller concentrations. With a micronutrient in our alkaline soils, the availability is going to be much less. And so we have to figure out ways to get the micronutrient into the plant, whether it be a soil application, possibly infro as a starter or pop-up fertilizer, or as a foliar fertilizer. And there There's debate as to whether or not foliar fertilizers work, but when you're talking about a nutrient, like a micronutrient that's needed in such small amounts, foliars may be a feasible option there. Where do you see the cotton industry going in the next 20 years or so? I see the cotton industry here still 
being as productive as it is today in 10 or 20 years. There may be changes that occur over those 10 to 20 years, and I hope that there are changes, um, simply because we all know that our aquifer may not be around, but farmers are smart. And I think farmers plus, you know, the research that's being done, not just by within academia, but by industry and the changes that are being made um, from a production standpoint, I think that we will continue to be the leaders in cotton production in Texas. We we just may have to change the way that we are producing that cotton. Do you think that there's sometimes a disconnect between the needs and challenges of the farmer and academia? When it comes to academia, it really depends on where you're at. Are you on a campus that is more focused on um, getting federal funds for research? Or are you at a research center like here in Lubbock where our customers are the farmers. Our research is directed by the needs of the farmer, what's important. And so I would say that there are scientists that are not as connected to the the farmer, but then you also have the, the, the scientists that are working because of the farmer and because of the needs that the farmers have. Um, without that connection between the scientist and the farmer, it goes back to it, it has no practical meaning. Dr. Moore, our director here, oh, yeah. does an awesome job of making of taking care of us because we still, even though we're at a center, you know, our bosses' bosses are on a campus in College Station, yeah. and. So our, our annual reviews, a lot of times it is, you know, you need to be applying for those federal funds and you need to be writing publications. And while that is all very important for um, the development of our science, still Dr. Moore does an excellent job of making sure that, you know, we are able to still meet the needs of the farmer and also still apply for those federal grants and because a lot of times the federal grants they're looking 20 years down the road they want that really really innovative research that is needed and is meaningful but it's not going to help the farmer today or in the next year or two how have nutrient demands in cotton changed cotton as I mentioned, hasn't had as much work, research done on it, say, as corn has from a nutrient standpoint. And it has been since the late 1980s, since cotton has been um, evaluated from a nutrient demand standpoint. There is a publication from 1990 that is well-cited, and it is one of the most... um, commonly used uh, publication data sets when it comes to discussing how much of a certain nutrient cotton needs and at what point within the growing season or growth cycle. And we all know that since the late 1980s, that genetics have changed 
the way we manage our cotton crop has changed. And so nutrient demands, in my opinion, should have also changed just because of the change in genetics. We've seen, um, you know, improved drought tolerance within um, our cotton cultivars. And with that, there could very well be a change in how much of a certain nutrient the plant needs, but also the timing of when that nutrient is needed within the plant. Part of the research that we're doing, and it's building off of the potassium work that we're, we've been doing for the past three years, is to reevaluate nutrient demands of more modern cotton cultivars. So not only to determine if our 50 pounds per bale of that we're producing of nitrogen, if that is a, a reliable recommendation, or is it possible that we could cut that back to 40 pounds because our, our plants, our cultivars are so much more efficient? And so hopefully with this research, we will be able to change those recommendations so that they are more reliable to the farmer. And there is the potential that input costs could be decreased because there's less of a certain nutrient that's needed by the plant. What's your favorite soil series? Hmm. My favorite soil series or soil texture would be more of a sandy type soil because I it while it doesn't have, you know, the structure that maybe a clay soil has, it's more amendable to, you know, adding things and it's going to have um more potential for us to to manipulate it in a way that maybe a clay soil wouldn't. It's going to have a lower buffering capacity, um, so it's going to offer challenges. But you know, being a soil scientist, that also offers opportunities for us to study more things. Um, a clay soil can have its challenges. It can, you know, become compacted. It can become um, saturated. I know my dad, where he farms, it's more of a clay texture in South Texas, and so it comes with its challenges. It's going to stay wetter for longer periods of time, whereas in a sandy soil, you can get two inches of rainfall and be back in the field in two days. And so it's just, it's more, it's more challenging, a sandy soil, but I think it is at times easier to work with and to manage than a clay soil might be. Farmers would probably disagree with me around here. They would probably give anything to not have to sand fight again. But then again, that's where cover crops can be beneficial too. What were some similarities and differences that you noticed when you moved out here in terms of farming versus where you grew up and where your dad farms closer to the coast? So the similarity would be cotton, and that's about it. (laughs) The implements are different. Um, While they may be similar, they have very different names. The weeds, while it's still pigweed, they may call them two different, completely different things. Soil textures are very, very different. Rainfall is very different. Before moving up here, I thought that everybody rotated cotton with another crop. My dad never ever had cotton following cotton. And the first time that I came up here with Clay, you know, we were talking, Clay's my husband, we were talking about, you know, their farming operation. He was like, oh yeah, we just grow cotton. I was like, but what, what do you rotate with cotton? Well, we don't. And that to me was the most shocking difference between the two places. I 
thought everybody rotated <laughs> crops. <laughs> but I understand why that's not common here, too. So, What's your perspective on how farmers take care of the land? One of the things that you hear a lot on social media, especially people that aren't familiar with farming and agriculture, is that farmers are doing things that you know, hurt the soil or that are damaging our environment. Farmers are probably the best stewards of the land because that's how they're making a living. That's how they're providing the food for their family, the clothes that their kids wear. That is their livelihood. And they are doing everything that they possibly can to ensure that their land is productive. And so to anyone out there that isn't familiar with what farmers do, they are protecting the environment. They aren't, you know, just spraying chemicals to do it. They are, everything they do has been thought out and it's with a purpose. And that purpose is to provide for their family and for the community and to ensure that the land is in the best shape that it can be for generations to come to continue to farm. And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Farming on Mars. Again, thank you to Cody West for allowing me to use his song Melody. Please go check out his album called Green. You definitely won't regret it. Well, I hope you all enjoyed getting to learn more about Dr. Katie Lewis as much as I did. I really enjoyed getting to pick her brain on a variety of different topics I've been wanting to ask her about. Please remember to check back again next week for another great episode about the people of the plains. I don't know.